Good morning, church. You guys are really struggling this morning. First service, wide awake. Second service, even more awake. You guys are zombies this morning. Welcome. Good morning, church. There we go. We're awake. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, to the book of Ephesians. We're going to wipe the sleep out of our eyes. We're going to forget that we lost an hour. Some of you don't even know where you're at right now. We're in the book of Ephesians, and we come to this book that we have been studying for the last handful of months, and we come to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. And for those who haven't been with us, this book that we're studying is a New Testament book written by the Apostle Paul to a group of believers who had started a church. St. Paul had started this church, and he had handed this church off to his protege, Timothy, and he now has spent a couple years away from them, this church he loves, this church he helped start, and he writes a letter to them. And he writes a letter reminding them of who they are in Christ the position they have in Christ, the great privileges they have in Christ, and the great purpose of living they have because of Christ. And the problem is, is that these people weren't living in a Christian vacuum. Like us today, living in the town of Ephesus in the first century is not much different than what it would look like for us living in the Fox Valley area in the 21st century. If you were to go to modern-day Turkey where Ephesus was at, you would find not the town of Ephesus, but the town of Selkuk. And Selkuk is a city right now of about 40,000 people. It's a place of, uh, of great tourism because much of the ruins of Ephesus are still there. And as you tour the ruins of Ephesus, you will see that uh, the place that the Ephesians lived in wasn't much different than the world we live in. They were known for their commerce. They were known for having one of the first, if you will, shopping malls, the one-stop shop of all commerce, whether it was food and groceries or uh, household items uh, or fine jewelry or fine linens or, or anything you could think of, you could find in the city of Ephesus. Sports and entertainment were known. Uh, one of the largest ancient coliseums has its ruins in Ephesus. And so that of athletics and that of events, like us here in America, were big for the Ephesian people. Uh, but also this issue of sensuality and sexuality was a big deal for first century uh, Ephesus. Uh, the reason why is they had a temple that was dedicated to Diana or Artemis, depending on if you were Greek or Roman, and the gods whom you served. And there was a temple there. It was one of the seven uh, ancient wonders of the world. And you can still go and see the edifice of that uh, incredible uh, structure and it's a place where tourists go, but this was a place of great commerce. It was a place of, sadly, great debauchery. So here's this fledgling church. They're trying to live according to the precepts of Scripture. They're trying to live under the submission of Jesus Christ, their newfound Savior and Lord. And they're being challenged by the Apostle Paul, as we learned last week, to live or walk in a manner worthy of the calling that they have received. But the problem is, is that's easier said than done. Because their world was not living. It was not walking in a manner worthy of the calling that it had received. 
It was living in sensuality and selfishness. It was pursuing all other things except for God. So here is a small group of Christians living cross or counter-cultural lives. They were swimming against the stream. They were going against the flow. And maybe this morning, here, a half a globe away, 20 centuries apart from this letter, maybe you find yourself in the same place, trying to live for Christ, trying to walk in a way that's worthy of Jesus Christ, who's called you out of darkness and brought you into light, and the world, whether it's your friends, whether it's your coworkers, whether it's your neighbors, whoever they are, are telling you that the way you're living is foolish, and even your body and your thinking is saying that maybe this isn't the right way to go, and so you begin to be tempted to turn away from Christ and to follow the ways of the world. Paul moves from urging them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling they received to something even more substantial, even more significant. Paul moves from saying, hey, I recommend, I urge, I hope, I encourage you to saying, listen, to do anything else would be futile. To do anything else would be foolish. And so in our text today, in verses 17 through 24, the Apostle Paul is going to lay forth what I want to call a moment of truth. He is going to say today, for every man, woman, and child in this place, a decision needs to be made. It's a moment of reckoning. It's a moment where we have to stop and take stock of our lives and ask some hard questions of ourselves because Paul says that based on what you do with this passage today is gonna to determine what you'll do with the rest of your life and if you're a part of this church, what you're gonna do with the rest of this book. Because sadly, if you answer uh, no to the things that are gonna be brought up in this message this morning, then the rest of the book makes no earthly sense to you. It's gonna bring you no value. But if you say yes, then it's gonna be one step upon another of the wise life that God has called his people to live. And so there's this moment of truth, this moment in this place, in this time, where a decision has to be made where the rest of our lives will be impacted. We see these types of moments in our lives when a young man gets down on a knee and asks, uh, the girl he loves, will she marry him? And in that moment of truth, the, the girl is going to say yes or no, or maybe in a little while or some variation of it, and that's going to determine the trajectory of those two individuals' lives. A moment of truth that will dictate what the path forward would look like. How about that young couple later on, a couple years later, when they are signing off on their first home? Did they buy the right home? Is it in the right neighborhood with the right neighbors? Is it a sound home? Are they going to be able to afford the payments? They look at the principal. They look at the interest. They look at the decades that they're going to take to pay off this house. And it's in that moment of truth <clears throat> when they sign on those mortgage papers, it will determine uh, the trajectory of their lives in that moment of truth, that decision point. How about when bad news comes, whether it's in the medical office, whether it's through uh, the word of a loss of a loved one, whether it's because of a loss of a job, news is brought to you, and in that moment, you've got a decision to make. It's a moment of truth. 
Will this trial, will this trouble, will this tribulation, will it make you bitter or will it make you better? Is this gonna be a decision that's going to send you down the path of despondency or a path of delighting in God's goodness and grace? In that moment, we all make decisions in those moments of truth that will determine the paths, the steps moving forward. In our text today, Paul gives us a moment of truth. And he says, we've got a decision to make that will determine and dictate the next steps of our lives. And he begins by saying this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do um, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, and to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There's a decision to be made. Paul says the decision is, are we going to live like Christ? Are we going to live like the Gentiles? Now, that word Gentiles can be uh, uh, translated as unbelievers, as the pagans, as people who don't follow Jesus Christ. It's not an ethnic issue of being a Gentile. It's the thinking, not wanting to be in covenant with God and his son, Jesus Christ. Are you going to live for self or are you going to live for a savior? Are you going to live for the things of this world or are you going to live for eternity? A decision has to be made. Now Paul says this is of such utter importance. Now that doesn't mean that everything is set up to this point isn't important, but notice he says now this, now this. In other translations it may say therefore or so. It's what we call a henna clause. It's, it's in light of all that has been shared before it. Paul says, in light of all that I've shared about your calling, about your position in Christ, about how God has seated you in the highest places in the heavenly realms and gifted you with every gift under heaven, because he's given you his Holy Spirit, because he has given you an inheritance that is beyond words, and beyond imagination, because he will do far more than you could ever ask for or imagine. In light of this, because of this, he says, I have something for you. A decision, something I need to lay before you. And he says the following, in light of all this that I've said, I say, and then he says, I testify. When a Bible author uses two words that seemingly say the same thing, you should pause and say, why is he using two words, say and testify? Why does he use two speaking words? Why? Because what he's going to say is important. So what he's going to say, and then he adds this claim to it, I'm going to testify. That word testify in the Greek is a courtroom word, which means I'm going to take the stand under oath, under the laws of perjury, what I'm gonna declare to you is ironclad. 
What I'm gonna declare to you is of utter importance. And then he sweetens the deal, if you will, because he says, I'm gonna take the stand under oath. I cannot lie, and I will stand as a liar if this stuff doesn't come true. And then he uses this phrase, I testify as a witness in the Lord. What he's saying is, is I'm telling you what the Lord would tell you. I'm saying this with God as my judge. I'm saying this as if the Lord is right here. Listen up, my friends. Listen up, church. What I'm going to declare to you is of utter importance. And he says this, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He says, listen, the first way that you can decide to live is to decide to live like a pagan. Now he says this to a group of people who have professed Christ, who are living in light of the Spirit, who are living in relationship with Jesus Christ. And he's saying, I want you to know something. There's a temptation that as you profess Christ, as you practice the things of Christ, you will be tempted to walk away from it. You will be tempted to go the way of the world. But today you've got to make a decision. Today you have to determine what way are you going to go. Will I walk like the world? Will I walk like Christ? That's the decision that is before us. Now these moments of truth, these decisions that we have, they're, they're seen throughout the Bible. God's people having to make a decision. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden had to make a decision, and they chose to pursue rebellion, their own ways over that of God and his goodness and grace. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three Hebrew boys who made a decision while all the nation would bow down to this statue made for the king. They said, we could not, we cannot. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling we receive means we do not bow the knee to any other God but God himself, Jehovah God, Yahweh. And if that means we've got to die, then we die. And if God doesn't protect us even as we stand up for him, that's okay. This is what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received. It is that decision that the disciples made when Jesus came to them and said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And at that moment, they dropped everything, the Bible says, and they followed him. It is in this moment a decision needs to be made. Who will we live like? Who will we think like? Who will we act like? And Paul says, We've got to ask some questions about ourselves to be able to determine that. Number one, what defines me? What defines me? Paul says that the beginning of this decision has to and must begin with our minds. He focuses in on our brains. You're going to see in the text two times at the beginning of the passage and at the end of the passage, he uses the word minds. And then he uses, if you will, derivatives of thinking words, understanding, ignorance, learned, teaching or taught. These are all thinking words. It leads us to understand 
that what Paul is saying is he's honing in on our minds, on our thinking. And what he's saying is your mind, my mind, is the epicenter. It is the command center of everything that we do. So we don't need to look at our actions. We need to first look at our thinking. Our thinking is what begets or what leads to our actions. It is our thinking. It is our thoughts that have the power to paralyze us or to motivate us to thrust us into depths of despair or to propel us to the heights of celebration. It is our thoughts that center us to lead us to truth or to lead us to error. It is our thoughts that send us in the trajectory of a downward spiral or an upward climb to seeing God in his glory and grace. The Bible says that our human wisdom, our human thinking is flawed at best, leading us to think that good is evil and evil is good. And so we've got a problem. Now one of the gifts, one of the privileges that our position in Christ gives us is the Bible says we are given the mind of Christ. That means if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have invited Christ into your life, that one of the gifts he gave you in salvation through the work of his Holy Spirit is he gave you his mind. Now right away, if you think that's gonna help you on your test tomorrow, high school student, you're wrong. It's not that kind of mind. It's not that we are omniscient. We know all things as Christ does. What it means is we have what the rest of the world does not have. In Christ, we have the supernatural, spiritual ability to look at our lives through the mind and eyes of Jesus. We are able to look at the details and moments of our life, not through our own fleshly thinking and mindset, but through the eyes of Almighty God. And so we have to stop and we have to ask the question, am I doing that? As a Christ follower, what this means is, first and foremost, and this is tantamount to everything we are, first and foremost, I need to understand that who I am, all that I am, is defined by and identified by Jesus Christ, not me, not the world, not culture, not society, not my friends. And when I understand that I am fearfully and wonderfully made, that God has made me for a purpose. When I set my mind on that, when I see myself through that, then I don't believe the lies of the devil who say, I'm ugly, I'm worthless, I'm good for nothing, I'm a waste of space, but I see myself as one who has been made and created in the image of God with infinite and immeasurable good and for a purpose. And though marred by my sin, by my foolishness, God, through the work of Jesus Christ, can redeem me and use my life for eternal value and worth. You see, when we start thinking with God's mind, with Christ's mind, then all the lies of the devil, all the lies of the world fall to the wayside. 
And the problem is, church, the problem is we do not see ourselves through Christ's eyes, through Christ's lens, through Christ's mind, but we have bought part and parcel with the messaging of the world that we are something that God says we're not. And so we've got to change our mind. We got to stop conforming to the things of this world and transform through the renewing of our mind what we know about ourselves and who we are and what God's called us to. It is there that I will get up every morning and I will look at my life. I will look at my world. I will look at my marriage, at my children, at my job, at my leisure, my money, my relationship with the church, my relationship with God, not through my eyes, but through his. Listen, it will radically change how I treat Amanda. If I treat Amanda through my eyes, well, she's going to fail me. As nice as you think she is, she fails. She doesn't live, yes, she doesn't live up to my expectations. Okay? And my kids don't either. And if I'm living by my mind, then I sit there and say, well, I don't need to love you until you live my way. Until you do what I want you to do, when I want it, how I want it. But when I put on the mind of Christ, it says, Tim, for your wife, you love her as Christ loved the church. You lay down your life for her. It doesn't matter what she does. You love her. You care for her as if you care for your own body. You provide for your kids. Well, you might say, well, my kids are good for nothing. It doesn't matter. That's the mind of self, the mind of Christ as you provide for them, as your heavenly Father provides for you. You go to work, and you're like, I work for imbeciles. I work for jerks. I'm going to say amen in it. Like in 24 hours, I'm going to be amongst a bunch of morons. That's the mind of self. The mind of Christ says, I'm at a job for a purpose. And you know who my boss is? It's Jesus Christ. And I serve him, and I honor him. And whether eyes are looking at me or not, I'm gonna do the best job I can with the gifts and abilities I have, whether I think I'm making enough or not, because Jesus is my employer. It is putting off the mind of yourself and putting on the mind of Christ. It will transform your day. It'll transform it. The battleground for us as a church, for us as a people, for us as a nation, for us as a world, it begins and ends with how we think. And Paul says, you cannot think like you used to. You cannot think with you as God. What defines you? Better, maybe better question is who defines you? Who defines you? You could say, what drives you, number two? What drives you? What drives you? You say, okay, I'm thinking certain things. Well, you need to understand what Paul says is your thinking leads to action. Belief always leads to behavior. 
They, behavior never comes before belief. Actions never come before thoughts. It always is your head leads your body. Your beliefs lead how you're going to behave. And this is what Paul says. You cannot live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They have darkened their understanding so as a result of that, they're alienated or separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Their thinking has affected their heart, which has now affected their action. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So Paul says, okay, you're gonna live for yourself. And a great many people do. Well, what does that lead you? It leads you to say to God, you don't exist. When you have your mind instead of the mind of Christ, what you do is you feed your ego. You know what ego stands for? Edging God out. So if you've got an ego, all you're doing is edging God out. The only person in all of this world who should have an ego is God. God deserves his ego. We worship God because he is God. He's the only one who legitimately can have an ego. But when we, created beings, fragile, futile creatures, have an ego, we push God off his throne and we say, no, God, you're not in charge, I'm in charge. And so my day is not about you, it's about me. Other people are not about you, they're about me. And so I am going to treat them as if they are lesser than me. Their needs are lesser than me. Their wants and, and, uh, and their uh, desires are lesser than me. And notice what happens. Because we're alienated and, and we're ignorant and because we're alienated from the life of God, due to the hardness of sin in our heart, we become callous towards people. We don't care. And the reason why we don't care is because we've given ourselves up to sensuality. That a picture of sensuality is whatever makes you feel good. And so what drives you this morning? Is it what makes you feel good? Is it what makes you feel happy? Well, then you're living in the old self based on the old way of thinking, and it causes you, if you're all about yourself, it causes you to be greedy. Greedy, not in the way of greedy for money, but notice, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The picture there is greedy to do everything that goes against God. Why is everything you do Going against God, here's why. If God is not in his proper place, even the good things in this world are sin. If you're edging God out of it, even your church attendance is a problem. Even your worship is a problem. Even your giving to the church is a problem. Even attending small groups is a problem. It's all a problem because you have made it about you instead of making it about God, you've made it about your mindset around you than Christ. And, and here's the problem. Paul says, this is not who we are. This is not who we are. He says, church, this is not the way you learned Christ. Notice, there's an exclamation point and a line after Christ. It's a pause. This is not how you learned Christ. 
This is not the Jesus that we've learned. This is not the way of life that he's called us to live. We have been called to live differently. The calling we have received is a different calling than pursuing all manner of sensuality and edging God out. It's about living for him, not ourselves. It's about putting on his mind, not our own. And so he says, you've been taught in him. And the truth is in him. Notice that truth is found in Jesus. But notice in verse 22 that the desires that we long for when we make it about ourselves, notice they're not truthful desires. They are deceitful. You're telling me, Tim, when we put on the mind of ourselves, when it's about us, the very desires we have in our being are lying to us? Paul says, yes, yes. Your body, your yourself is lying to you. It's telling you things that aren't true, and, and here's why. Because this decision has to be made and it's going to lead us. If I'm gonna put on the mind of Christ, it's gonna send me one way. If I'm gonna put on the mind of self, it's gonna lead me another. And it leads to what is my destination? Where does this decision lead me? Well, Paul says the, the decision to follow Christ, if we were to put on Christ and renew the spirit of our minds, that it leads us to true righteousness and holiness. It leads us to where God wants us to go. But what about if we live for self? And this isn't just for the church. This is for anybody who's here today who has never bowed the knee to Jesus. God is saying to you today that living life apart from God, I want you to see the word he uses, what your destination is in verse 17, futility. Futility. Now, for those who have been a part of our church, this word futility is a well-known word to us, not in the Greek, but in the Hebrew. Because when we looked at this word in our last sermon series out of the book of Ecclesiastes, this word in the Hebrew, futility, came out 36 times. When we studied the life of Solomon, and we studied how to get the good life, Solomon says that finding the good life in this world is futility, vanity, meaninglessness. And 36 times he tells us you're never gonna find it. This word futility in both the Hebrew and Greek speaks of something that's failed, transitory, uh, lacking substance, something that is there for a moment and then gone. I said in the sermon series back then uh, that living a futile life is like finding yourself driving in circles in a cul-de-sac, never getting to where you want to go, just living your life, going about in circles. But this word futility in the Greek adds this, this added measure to it. And I want to illustrate this for you, and I, I hope this you know, pictures help us, and I hope this helps you, especially those who have been living life apart from God, looking for their significance and their, uh, their uh, purpose in this life apart from God. When I was younger, my, my dad would occasionally, he was a grocer, and he would bring home little gifts for us. 
uh, as little boys to play with. And one of the things he sold in his grocery store were bottles of bubbles with those little plastic wands that you would pull out of the, of the bubble bottle and you would begin to blow them. And as little boys, three boys, we would love blowing bubbles. And we would love to go and, and watch the bubbles fly into the air and seeing all that we have created just with a matter of our a vapor of our breath. And then what we would try to do is we would try to go about as these kids are trying to grab hold of the bubbles. Now let's leave this screen here for a moment. What do bubbles have to do with what I'm talking about? If you are living your life apart from Christ, if you are living your life for yourself, this is you and I, this is the world. And the world says the bubbles are the totality of your significance, of your status, of your pleasure, of your prestige, of your possessions. Grab a hold of these bubbles. They're there, look how beautiful they are. They come in all different shapes and, and sizes and, and whatever one floats your boat, whatever one catches your attention, go after it and grab a hold of it. And there are so many of us, sadly in this church, and far too many in the world who are like these kids running after the bubbles of this world. But here's where the Greek word futility comes in. We go after them and, and right when we think we've got them, that moment that we have them in our clutches, what happens to a bubble? It, it pops. It bursts. And this is the futility of life apart from God. The devil and the world and our flesh says, get the bubbles. Collect as many bubbles as you can. The futility of it is as soon as you touch them, they're gone. They disappear. They were here today and they're gone today. And we then live with the sadness and here's the futility of it and the callousness and the hardness of our heart. We, it doesn't dawn on us apart from Jesus Christ. And we keep going after bubbles that burst. And so we fill our lives in the totality of our days running after these bubbles, seeking to grab a hold of them, whether it's a job, whether it's a promotion, whether it's a different person. I'll divorce this one, that bubble bursts, and so I'll go find a new bubble, a better bubble, a bubble that doesn't burp, a bubble that doesn't do this, and a bubble that doesn't do that, and that new person, that'll make my life. I'll get a new house, that bubble, that will be it, a new car. I'll change this part of my body, I'll do this thing. That will be it, that's the ticket. That's where I'll find significance and, and I'll find the true meaning of life. And apart from Jesus Christ, all bubbles will burst. They'll burst. And so you and I have to make a decision this morning. Will we put on that old way of thinking or will we put on Christ? And like putting on a, a, a piece of clothing we make a conscious decision, this piece of clothing doesn't work, so I'm gonna put on this new robe, this new cloth, and I'm gonna put it on because it works. It fits, it's right. And Paul says that that garment is Christ. And that garment is the new self created after the likeness of God, our creator, 
so that we might live in true righteousness and holiness. You've got a decision to make. I've got a decision to make. Will I walk in the deceitfulness of my desires, in the futility of my mind, or will I live in true righteousness and holiness, living as I was created to in the likeness of God? So it begs this question, and I'll close. In this moment of decision, in light of what the Bible says about the futility of living separate from God, and focused in on my selfish desires. You've seen it. I hope that I've clearly explained in black and white, this is what God's word says. Living apart from God and your selfishness, living separate from him is futile. It's foolishness, it's a chasing after the wind. And so I've come to this conclusion by faith. I'm not gonna live that way anymore, but I'm going to believe in Jesus as my only savior for my sin and the only solution to what I'm looking and longing for so I commit to living in relationship with him. It's a moment of truth, my friends. Can you say yes, or will you say no? Can you, on, the, on your bulletin paper there, write yes? And if you're saying yes for the first time, I don't want you to leave this place without telling me or someone else, I have said yes. We wanna help you with that, because the world is a very tempting place. But as a follower of his, God says he wants us, he wants to empower us and equip us, he wants to grace us with everything we need. But to receive that, to, to, to feel that empowering, we first need to say yes. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord. And fill me now with your spirit, fill me with your grace, fill me with what I need, fill me with your mind so that I may not sin against you, so I may not go the way that I'm not called to go, that I may follow you. The question, this moment of truth, begs the question, how are you gonna build your life? Will you build it on Christ, who is a strong and secure foundation, or will you build it upon yourself and upon the many other bubbles that will at some point in time burst, and your dreams and your desires and your purpose burst along with it? My prayer and my hope is that you will choose Christ. And in doing so, you will see how firm and how secure he really is.